Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my goodness. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome in to another episode of the Mass and All Access podcast. Tim Leonard, Paul Mancano, another special bonus episode, draft content episode for you guys. And Paul, we talked on Tuesday, and now we're in reverse spots on yep. the couch on Thursday. It's throwing me off a little bit. Yeah, but, but I, I'm talking the other way now. I think I got to reverse all my takes. <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm just going to pick the other side. It's going to be like point-counterpoint. It might make your bad takes good. It might be I, a, yeah. beneficial for the listeners. But then what happens to my good takes, Tim? <laughs> they are so rare, but they're important. Well, anyway, we have switched spots on the couch, but it is still the Mass and All Access podcast. It is a draft-heavy episode coming up for you guys as we get closer to the MLB draft. I think you're locking in now more on the MLB draft. It's getting yeah. to that point of the season. Yeah, you and Brendan Mortensen, who did the episode last week, were way ahead of this stuff than I was, and you guys have already compiled a ton of notes, but now I'm catching up slowly. I mean, we talk about it you know, all the time, not to rehash it, but... The Orioles right now are deserving of our attention, and so we're a little bit later to the party in terms of draft coverage, but you're doing an excellent job so far, Tim. Well, it's been fun. It's a fun thing to cover, especially when the Orioles have the number one overall pick. They have five picks in the first 81 picks, which I think is going under the radar, if anything, and that's something that we'll probably talk about as the episode progresses here. We will give you our takes on who we think is going number one as of right now, our best educated guess. We will also hear from Carlos Colazzo of Baseball America. He's going to give his perspective on scouting some of these top guys recently. And at the very end of today's episode, we will hear from Brian Kramer, who was the head coach for Drew Jones at Wesleyan High School, and get his perspective on what it was like to coach Drew Jones. So it is a loaded show today. It, it really is. And we know that the Orioles, uh, they've made it clear. They've narrowed it down to five guys. And so we, in turn, are going to lock in our perspective on those five guys. Now, we don't know exactly what their list consists of, but we tend to think that it is the same that national pundits have as the top five guys, which would be Drew Jones, Brooks Lee. I'm going to forget all these guys. Jackson, Elijah Green, Green, Mm -hmm. Jackson Holiday, and... Uh, Tamar Johnson. Tamar Johnson as the fifth one. So we're going (laughs) to... I swear I know these. Uh, We are going to kind of lock in our perspective on these five guys and kind of, you know, a lot of the... uh, Fans are just going to hear these names over and over again, but uh, it's a matter of just bringing the context of who these guys are and what their differences are so that fans know when the Orioles make their pick what the Orioles are getting. Yeah, and we also talked today about Kamar Rocker, who could be a potential pick later on for the Orioles, a name that many fans probably remember because he was selected last year in the top 10, did not sign with the Mets. He is now draft eligible Again, so we'll get into all of that, but let's start out the show today by hearing from Carlos Colazzo, who does a great job covering all things draft for Baseball America. Got a chance to talk with him earlier in the week. Tim Leonard back inside our Mass and All Access studios now and happy to be joined by Carlos Colazzo, who covers the MLB draft and prospects for Baseball America. Carlos, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. And I know you're probably busy right now as we get closer to the draft here. The Orioles have the number one overall pick for the first time since 2019. Just for you, someone that's been covering the draft for a number of years now, how does the top end talent compare to other draft classes that you've covered this year? 
I think it's a really good year. I would say it's solidly above average at the top of the class. There are a lot of really impressive hitters, both on the high school and the college side. So if you like the higher risk, higher reward toolsy high school demographic, there are plenty of players who fit that at the top of this class. If you prefer the maybe a little bit safer and more uh, polished or refined college players uh, who maybe don't have the same tool set, but um, you feel good about their track record playing in big conferences at the college level, you have that as well. And I think specifically for the number one overall pick, there is a consensus top player in this class in Drew Jones. Um, so if you just want to take the best player available, it's a, it's a pretty good year to be picking 1-1. Yeah, let's talk about Drew Jones a little bit. Of course, the son of Andrew Jones, who was the 10-time Gold Glove winner for the Braves. If you've gotten a chance to see him in person, what stands out about Drew Jones's game? I really think Drew, for Drew, everything stands out about his game. I mean, he is eerily similar to his dad in a lot of ways. At the same time, he's an elite defender in center field. Obviously, his father was one of the best defensive center fielders of all time. Um, scouts really think that Drew has a chance to be a Gold Glove type center fielder as well. Um, on top of that, you've got a player who is a premium hitter. Uh, he's very polished with the bat. He's got a lean frame that you can project power on moving forward. Um, he's a double plus runner. He's got a strong arm. So I think what makes Drew the top prospect in the class um, by most people that we talk to is just the fact that he's got such an explosive and well-rounded game. There's no real obvious hole in his game. He's got the tools. He's got a premium defensive position. He's got track record of hitting, and he's got a body where you can project a lot more power and strength coming forward as well. What would you say is his ceiling, if you had to guess right now? I know that's kind of a hard question when you're mm -hmm. talking about an 18-year-old kid, but just how good could Drew Jones be? I mean, he could be a perennial all-star. I think he's one of the few players in this class who routinely gets that kind of feedback. It's it's obviously uh, pretty aggressive to put that on a high school player, saying he can be a perennial all-star uh, at the big league level, but that's the kind of talent, that's the kind of tools, that's the kind of skill uh, that I think he has. I think he's probably the one player in this class that teams would feel most comfortable putting that sort of role or designation on him. Um, he really just has that tool set, the, the explosion in his game, the polish, like everything that you would want to see um, if, if he hits, uh, if he continues to, to hit and just um, keeps filling out that frame, uh, as long as he doesn't get hurt or any of those tools back up, he's got a chance to impact the game in a lot of different ways on the defensive side, in the box, on the base paths. Um, he's just a really complete player. And then, of course, there's another all-star son at the top of this draft class, Jackson Holiday, son of Matt Holiday. He's really risen up the draft boards after a great season last year. What stands out about his game? Yeah, Jackson Holiday, another Bloodlines player, like you mentioned. There are a ton of really talented players in this class who are the sons uh, of former big leaguers or, or former uh, professional athletes. Holiday is, is another one of the most prominent ones. I think um, last summer he was a guy who everyone was kind of looking at his frame um, as a guy who could take a huge jump with a strong offseason. That's exactly what he had. He, he added a few inches to his body. He added some more strength over the offseason. Um, and this spring really just demolished the competition that he was facing in Oklahoma. He set a national hits record. Um, and again, another premium position. Uh, he, he played shortstop, probably one of the best chances to stick at shortstop among the top prospects in this class. On top of that, he's a left-handed hitter with power, um, good bat-to-ball skills, ability to use the entire field. Um, and similar to Drew, he just has a super projectable frame where as that power and strength continues to come along, he's going to be able to access power more naturally in-game. I don't know if that he's the same sort of player that his father was at the same time. I think uh, Matt probably had more power at this time. But again, Jackson, like Drew, is another guy. You look at his tool set and it's above average tools are better across the board 
while playing a premium position at shortstop. So as you mentioned, he's been a really high riser this spring. He entered the year in maybe second round range and is solidly uh, one of the top three to five best players in this class right now. For you, is there a difference in talent level between a Drew Jones and a Jackson Holiday at the top? Like, is Drew consensus higher than Holiday on your boards? For us, Drew is the consensus top prospect. I think um, last year we dealt with a group of high school shortstops that was really tough to figure out who was the number one player. And depending on who you talk to, you would get a different answer. Um, in 2019, Adley Rutschman was the consensus top prospect in the class um, by a pretty good margin. I would say Drew is the consensus top player in the class somewhere in between those levels. It's certainly the consensus name we get at the top, but I don't think the separation between Drew and the next best player on the board um, is quite the same as Adley Rutschman in 2019. So, yes, most people put him in that number one spot. And for us, there is some separation, but I don't know that it's a massive gap. Gotcha. What about Elijah Green, who's also at the top a lot of these draft boards? It seems like he's maybe the biggest boomer bust type of player there, but might have the most upside of anyone. Yeah, I think you could make a really compelling case and a very easy argument that he is the highest upside player in this class. He's such a unique and dynamic athlete. His power speed combination with the physicality that he has. I mean, he's the son of a, a 10-year NFL player, and, and that really is apparent when you see him on the baseball field. It's it's very rare for a player with his physicality um, to come out uh, on the baseball field and, and be such a polished player. I think a lot of people might just put um, the term raw on him. I don't think he's a raw prospect by any means. There is some swing and miss that comes with his game, maybe a little bit more than a Drew Jones. And because of that, you have some risk, but um, he was one of the more um, impressive in-game power hitters that I've seen in years. The power shows up in-game against good pitching. Um, and I think he might just be the offensive player who you're just going to have to live with a little bit of swing and miss in his game. But the power that he provides uh, will more than make up for that. He's a 70 runner, 70 raw power. Playing center field now, you don't see a lot of major league outfielders with his sort of size and frame play that position long term. But I don't know why there's any reason he couldn't at least start his career at the position. And then if he gets too big, he'll be a really good defender in a corner as well. But certainly I would say if there's one player who, if everything goes exactly right for him, um, Elijah Green has has the biggest pure upside in the class. And then arguably maybe the best hitter in the class is Tamar Johnson. Some have his hit tool as high as an 80, which is an absurd number for a high school bat. And he is a second baseman, so it'll be somewhat of a surprise if he won at the number one overall pick. But given kind of what we know about Mike Elias and the Orioles' philosophy, what are the chances you would say right now that Tamar Johnson would be the number one overall pick? Yeah, it's tough to say. I think every year that the Orioles are picking up top, they, they are a mystery of a team. It's very hard to get a good read on what they're doing. They've picked in the one spot and taken the best talent available. They've picked in the top five, not in the one spot, and gone further off the board um, to underslot a player who they like in the college demographic and move money around later. So taking Tamar 1-1 would be a bit different than what they've done in previous years, but it's also a different draft board. And like you said, Tamar Johnson's hit tool is incredibly special. In the time that I've been covering the draft, He's easily the best high school hitter that I've seen. Uh, he's extremely polished. His pitch recognition is fantastic. He has bat speed. He has strength now. Um, he can use the, the opposite field. He can turn on balls and hit them 400 feet to the pole side. He, We don't have an 80 on his hit tool. We have a 70, uh, but that's still an extremely loud grade for a high school hitter. And well, I felt putting that 70 on his hit tool just based on the feedback that you get from the industry. It's a special, special bat. And I think unlike Elijah Green, who has just really explosive tools, and really Drew Jones, whose, whose tool set, supplemental tools, are really loud and exciting. Tamar does not have 
those same supplemental tools. You mentioned him playing second base. He played shortstop in high school. Most people in the industry think he's going to be a second baseman long-term. He doesn't have the sort of speed um, and defensive profile that a Drew Jones or an Elijah Green has, but the hit tool is more advanced and more refined than either of those players. So if you are fully in on the hit and power tools um, and Baltimore has shown a tendency to really chase those tools in the past, Tamar Johnson is a really special and unique player. How big of a gap is there for you between Drew Jones and Tamar Johnson? And knowing that maybe Tamar Johnson would be less of a signing bonus and everything, and it could help you out later on in the draft, is that something that you think the Orioles should strongly consider? Uh, for me, I think I'm always a best player available type of person. If you're picking at the top, I think you just take the best player um, that you have there. And if, if there is a consensus uh, that Drew's the best player, I would probably just take whoever my my scouts or my uh, the people that I was working with thought was the best player and, and not think too much of it. Um, at the same time, uh, I'm probably higher on Tamar Johnson than the industry itself. I think a couple of the people at Baseball America specifically are just really uh, enamored with his hitting ability. I think the hit tool is the most important. Um, so if they were to go that direction, I don't think it would be crazy. Like I said, the gap between Drew um, and the next best player uh, in this class is certainly real, but it's not massive. Um, and I think if, if you viewed a difference in their signing bonuses, I don't know exactly what the signing bonus demands are going to be for all of these players, but there's certainly a case to be made that that, that could be a good decision. Um, with the financials in the baseball draft, you have the ability to get a little bit flexible, um, get creative, move some money around. Um, and while that wouldn't be my preferred strategy, it certainly makes sense logically to me, and, and I wouldn't be shocked. What about Brooks Lee? He's considered by most as maybe the top college bat in this draft. We've seen Mike Elias go for college bats in the past. How would you describe his game? Just an exceptional hitter like Tremar Johnson. In, in many ways, I think he's he's almost a college version of Tremar Johnson, who is a highly regarded hitter coming out of high school as well. He's the only other player in this class that we put a 70 hit tool on his bat. The way the industry has spoken about his hitting ability is just exceptional the numbers that he's posted at cal poly are tremendous he's got an outstanding understanding of the strike zone he's walked almost three times as much as he struck out i believe this spring uh playing shortstop now again like tamar johnson playing that position now but probably going to move off to maybe second or third but he's a guy who i think the power is going to continue coming it's not like he has a massively projectable frame but he plays in a pretty big park he has hit a ton of doubles the past two years and i think when he gets into that pro environment, a lot of those doubles are going to turn into home runs. Um, and he's a player who you just have to feel really confident about his hit tool because he's done it at the high school level in the showcase circuit. Uh, he's done it in college. He's just hit no matter where he's been. Um, and the industry has a ton of confidence in his hit tool. So another, um, no doubt, infielder in some capacity who you can feel really good about the, the hit tool. All right, Tim and Paul back in studio now. And it's interesting hearing that last thought from Carlos Colazzo, who does a great job covering everything over at Baseball America, all prospects and draft-related content. Great perspective from him. But he was talking about Brooks Lee at the end there. And hearing his answer just made me think again, it's such a Mike Elias guy, right? And that's something we've talked about. Orioles have gone for college bats. They've gone for plus hitters in the past. And it seems like Brooksley maybe is going under the radar just how much of a chance it is that the Orioles could take him with the number one pick. Yeah, I think pretty much every draft expert when discussing the number one pick talks about the unpredictability of Mike Elias in this Orioles front office. And I think Elias and Sigma Dell in that front office likes it that way because there's so much gamesmanship. Even when you have the number one overall pick, 
it's not just about, you know, a lot of people would say, well, who are you fooling? You don't have to worry about, you know, letting people know because you take the, you get who you want at number one, but it's also about making sure that you keep it guarded so that you can have negotiations with agents and with players that don't get discussed and then stuff leaks and then you find out, you know, different players raise their prices, whatever it ends up being. So they have to keep it guarded, but in in that way too, it's very difficult to predict. Yeah. And so all that we're left with is kind of looking at the prospects that we have available and looking at what, what Michael Elias and this front office have done, and we only have three draft classes so far to evaluate. And the interesting thing is, too, that this is something you brought up to me off-air. If the Orioles had maybe the second or the third pick, yeah. I think they would be all over Brooksley. Yeah. It feels like a guy like a Colton Kowser, like a Heston Kerstad college bat that could get to the pros quickly is definitely advanced as a hitter, good plate discipline, bat to ball speed, checks all those boxes. So the interesting thing is they don't have the number two or number three pick this year. They have number one, and we've only really seen the Orioles have the number one pick under Michael Ice once we have, and it was Adley Rutschman who they took, who is kind of like the Drew Jones of this year's class in a way because Adley may have been maybe more consensus than Drew Jones was, but... Also, Drew Jones is more glove first, and we've seen the Orioles go bat first in the past. So I feel like if the Orioles had the second or third pick, we would be on this podcast saying, like predicting that they would take yeah. Brooksley. Well, I think I'd feel confident about that. And a big reason why is of the Orioles' three first-round picks that they've had, aside from Jordan Westberg, who was the very end of the first round, uh, but including Jordan Westberg, the Orioles have only taken college players. So... Of these five guys that we discussed, four of these guys are high school players. So unless it is Brooks Lee, they're going to take a high schooler. And the question is, how much does Michael Elias want to do that? Um, and it seems like Brooks Lee would be an ideal candidate for an underslot. Again, there's so much that we don't know right now. And a lot of that is what these guys intend to sign for. I look back in 2020 when the Orioles, everybody thought going in they would take Austin Martin. He ends up falling to the fifth pick because he wanted an overslot deal, and the Orioles just didn't want to give him that, and Heston Kerstad was willing to take an underslot deal. We have no idea what these guys want, but I would tend to think that somebody like Brooks Lee is an underslot guy. Yeah. And all three guys, Adley Rutschman, Heston Kerstad, uh, and Colton Kowser were underslot college players, even though Adley signed very close to the appropriate slot value for that number one pick. So... Brooks Lee would fit that category, whereas everything that we've heard, again, not 100%, but rumor mill tells us that Drew Jones is going to want the slot value mm -hmm. or exceed the slot value. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me because I could see any of those top five guys being the number one overall pick. I think I would probably rank Elijah Green as the least likely. Right. But because I say that, maybe that means he's going to get taken by the Orioles. We don't know at this point, and the Orioles are very mysterious and do a good job of making it tough to evaluate which way they are leaning. There was some talk early on in the process and early mock drafts had Jacob Berry going to the Orioles. Yeah. And I feel like now it feels like Brooks Lee is the consensus number one college bat, but Barry's another guy that maybe we won't talk about Barry at all, and then the Orioles will take him. And yeah. we'll just look around and be like, ah, oh, of course they did that, because we never know what they're going to do. Yeah, and and exactly. We're, we could look back on it and say, it was right there in front of us. Right. And I, that's how we felt with Colton Kowser, I think, because the podcast before that, I ended up predicting that they would go with, I think, Marcelo Mayer or somebody like that. 
and then they made Kowser, and it was like, a, well, of course, they went with Colton Kowser. It very much fits that mold. And Kowser was billed as, and Michael Elias said on draft night, he's a five-tool guy. And Brooks Lee isn't quite that, but he does have sufficient tools when you talk about the five tools. 65 hit, 55 power, 50 run, 55 arm, and 50 field, according to MLB Pipeline. So he checks the boxes, but I just don't know if that combination of tools is as good as some of the other guys on this list. Even though he checks those boxes, and that 65 hit is pretty impressive. That's more than Drew Jones, more than Elijah Green, and more than Jackson Holiday. And the Orioles love that high hit tool, but the question is, do all? it's not like an exact equation. You don't just add up the tools and divide by five. But there are guys that have better tools across the board than Brooks Lee. And when you have that number one pick, it's hard to pass on better talent. And the other thing that I found fascinating from hearing that interview with Carlos Galazzo, how when I asked him about Tamar Johnson, he gave his answer about his hit tool and everything we've been hearing about Tamar Johnson. He was raving about how talented of a hitter he is. Then I asked him about Brooks Lee right after, and he was like, he's a lot like Tamar Johnson, which yeah. makes me think if you're the Orioles and you're trying to go under slot and you're trying to go for bat first, would you be more inclined to just do Tamar Johnson? Does that make it less likely that Brooks Lee is there? Although Brooks Lee is the college guy, and we haven't really seen Mike Elias in one of these situations go for a high school bat this high up in the draft yet. Yeah, and Brooks Lee, or uh, Tamar Johnson rather, has incredible bat-to-ball school skills, which yeah. is what, and the kind of hype is building around, the discussion is starting to become, will the Orioles take a risk on Tamar Johnson? And I think that that, was partly because Tamar was at the Combine. Michael Elias, of course, like all the other GMs, was at the Combine, and maybe that narrative started to get furthered when Tamar Johnson had an amazing Combine, but it's becoming more and more of a possibility. The problem is he is five foot eight and he's a second baseman. Yeah. And there are all these kind of notions of what a number one overall pick should be, and most of them don't include that. But every year, it feels like, at least the past few years, They've been kind of breaking that mold. I mean, Henry Davis was not a typical number one overall pick. He Torkelson, just, too. Torkelson, yeah. of course, which you guys talked about on the last podcast, was a first baseman. They announced him as a third baseman, but he's a first baseman, and that is not a position that you know typically goes 1-1. It's very hard to find. So uh, when it comes to whether or not Tamar Johnson is a prototypical 1-1 pick, that's less important than are you getting the best talent at the best price? Yeah, and I think Mike Elias has proven that he's willing to do things that haven't been done before or yeah. go against the consensus a little bit, which is a good thing. I'm right. not saying that's a bad thing. So I feel like, for me at least, there's growing buzz that Tamar Johnson yeah. is willing to be the number one pick. He wants to be the number one pick. He might sign a deal that's a little less or under slot so that he is the number one pick. I think if I had to make a prediction today, which I think – Last week, I said Jackson Holiday, so maybe next week I'll say Drew Jones. Who knows <laughs> yeah. where I'm at? But if I had to make a prediction today, I feel like Tamar Johnson is my best guess at who the Orioles will take at number one. And it's because of the hit tool, right? Yeah. It's because the combination of the hit and the power, and especially when Michael Ice is going with, if in this scenario, going with the high schooler where there are so many uncertain things. I think part of the reason they like college players is because of the certainty, because you you're you have a much better access to analytical tools. You have sensors in the ballparks. You have them going up against college competition. I know Sam Houston State is not, you know, playing great teams, but it's still a collegiate program. Yeah. Whereas high school is all over the map. I mean, even if a guy goes to a superior, supreme high school program, there's no guarantee that 
the guys he's going up against, they're high schoolers. Yeah. And it's so difficult to, you don't have every single team ranked. You don't know exactly how good these guys are. So that's why they feel a little bit safer going with a college guy. And so if they do go with a high school guy, I think they'd want to take the one that has the most sure thing in terms of the hit tool. Yes. And for me, that's Tamar Johnson because the combination of the tools might not be there in terms of the speed and the defense like they are for Drew Jones, but the hit tool might just be that good and that certain that they can't pass up on him. Yeah, so that's the number one pick. Our opinions might change on that by tomorrow, maybe. It's it's very fluid at this point, but let's talk a little bit about the later rounds for the Orioles and Kamar Rocker specifically, because that's a name that I think a lot of fans are intrigued by. He was a guy that was maybe potentially going to be taken by the Orioles last year when they had the number five pick. He fell to number 10 out of Vanderbilt, had a great season. But there's concerns about his medical, so he didn't end up signing with the Mets. He's been pitching for the Valley Cats, the Tri-City Valley Cats. He's been pitching pretty darn well, I yeah. will say, which has probably risen his draft stock, if anything. But you'll take a look at mock drafts right now, and he's anywhere from like 17 to 40. It's kind of a mystery where Kamar Rocker is going to go. We have not seen the Orioles take a lot of pitchers under Mike Elias, very high in the draft. But they do have four picks in that first night. Their next pick is number 33. Is there a possibility that we could see Kamar Rocker taken by the Orioles there? I think, like you said, anything is on the table, and there's so much that we don't know. Not just how much is Kamar Rocker looking to get, but his medicals. I mean, that's probably going to be the biggest factor in terms of determining where he's going to land, because... That was a factor nobody had any idea about until he kept slipping last year. He falls to 10 and then ultimately can't come to that agreement with the Mets because of undisclosed elbow and shoulder issues that came up on his medical examination. That's why he wasn't signed. So that's something that is going to determine, I think, essentially where he is drafted, maybe more so than how much money he's going to take. So to me, it's hard to predict whether he'll even be there at number 33, whether he'll be there at number 81. Yeah. <laughs> and by the end of, you know, the the third round, it's just very difficult to determine what other teams think of him. Uh, but he has been pitching well for those Tri-City Valley Cats, like you said, <laughs> of independent baseball, so he's not in the minors or anything. And again, you have no idea how good the guys are that he's going up against. 180 ERA, 25 strikeouts and only three walks in 15 innings yeah. so far in four starts. Pretty impressive stuff. He's always been a high strikeout guy, too. Yeah. And that's 15 per nine is 25 strikeouts so far in the 15 names. So that is a ridiculously high number, again, against lower competition. But I do think this whole philosophy gets overlooked when you talk about the Orioles draft, especially this year when you have the number one overall pick. A lot of what we're going to talk about is that number one overall pick and who yeah. will they take, and that's the fun thing to talk about. But we've seen guys like Gunnar Henderson be selected in the early second round. And the Orioles have five picks in the first 81 picks. And they also have 33 and then 42, I believe. So, I mean, that's three of the top 42 picks. They could really get some talent here and strengthen their farm system. And also, when you're considering, should we take Tamar Johnson at an underslot so that maybe we could reach for a Kamara Rocker? All these things go into the evaluation. I think it's often overlooked just how much that goes into the equation of who you want to select at number one. Yeah, so they have number one, like you said, Tim, they have 33, which is the first pick in competitive balance round A, which happens after the first round, but before the second round. The reason it's number 33 
is because both the Rockies and Reds have compensation picks for Trevor Story and Nick Castellano signing with other teams. So they have number 33 there. Then they have number 42, which is the third pick in the second round. And the reason they don't have the first pick in the second round is because the Dodgers pick dropped 10 spots because they exceeded the luxury tax. Hmm. And then the Mets have the 11th pick because they did not sign because they didn't (laughs) sign Kamar Rocker. So there's all kinds of stuff happening here. But essentially, those are the top three picks. And then they have competitive balance round B pick, which is number 67, which they got back in the Cole Sulcer and Tanner Scott trade. So those are three. It's all very confusing, but essentially the Orioles have these high picks. And when you talk about how they could use them, it all comes back to that number one pick, like you said, Tim, because the number that that guy signs for is going to determine how much money they have to spend on these later picks. And we saw last year the Orioles shaved money on the first pick with Colton Kowser. They shaved money on their second pick uh, with Connor Norby, and it allowed them to sign all 20 guys. They went over slot. Uh, with a catcher in Creed Willems later on in the draft. But other than that, they pretty much went under slot, and that allowed them to sign every single one of their draft picks. Will the Orioles opt for more value over quantity here and try to assign somebody to a big, big-term big deal right? like a Kumar Rocker, or will they just keep going under slot and save it so that they can sign every one of their draft picks again? And again, Kumar Rocker's possibilities of where he's going to get drafted are very wide. Yeah. But- I tend to believe that someone's going to reach for him early, just given that there's not a lot of pitchers in this class. And for anyone that's wondering, can the Orioles take a pitcher number one? It's not even really an option this year because there's maybe the first pitcher is going to be 11 or 12 in this draft. And there's a lot of pitchers that have been dealing with injuries as well recently, so they're slipping down the board. So I feel like given that there's not a lot of pitchers, also given that Kamar Rocker has a very high ceiling, if it works out and the medicals work out. And the other thing is, He's older now. He's almost 23. He's been pitching kind of in professional baseball in the independent league. So he's still been, you know, developing this past year. He could get to the major leagues in a year. I mean, he could get to the major leagues as fast as anyone in the first round. I don't think that's bullish to say. And he also still has a very high ceiling. So he's a pitcher when there's not a lot of pitchers. He has a high ceiling. And also, he could get there very quickly. I think some team is going to find that appealing and probably reach for him in maybe the 20 to 25 range. And I would be surprised knowing what we know right now if he's there at 33. But we also would have said two weeks before last year's draft that he would never have been number 10 to the Mets. So who knows? Yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of fans last year were upset when the Orioles didn't take him. At number five, they thought it was miraculous that he fell to them. And then they thought it was ridiculous that they didn't take him at number five. But look at what happened. I mean, (laughs) he fell all the way to number 10 and he ended up not even signing. So this could be an opportunity if you were in that Kamar Rocker camp back in 2021 for the Orioles to have their cake in Colton Kowser and eat it too in Kamar Rocker. So if you're if you're in that part of the conversation, if you were on Kumar Rocker's side in terms of you believe in this kid then you could definitely see that as a huge positive. But at the same time, there's clearly a reason he fell to 10 last year. There's a reason he didn't get signed last year. And if he falls to number 33, there's going to be a reason of that too. Yeah. So there's a lot that is going to go into this. But we have seen Michael Eyes do this in the past when it comes to the Astros. Again, you said the Orioles don't draft pitchers high. Last year, their first pitcher off the board was Carlos Tavera in the fifth round. Then they waited four more rounds before they went on this crazy run of pitchers on day three of the draft. 
But back with the Astros, when Carlos Correa was the number one overall pick in 2012, a pick that Michael Elias championed, he ended up making it, you know, they signed Carlos Correa massively under slot, and boy, did they get the <laughs> bargain of that deal. Mm-hmm. But they, the money that they saved allowed them, with the number 41 overall pick, to go ahead and take Lance McCullers Jr., who ended up working, and I know he's got a lot of, t- lot of injuries, but ended up becoming yeah. an MLB player, certainly had a high ceiling, so he ended up working out, but they signed him way over slot at $2.5 million, uh, which they were able to do because they saved money with that first pick. So he's done it before, just with different front offices. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting if the Orioles sort of followed that same strategy this year because it is very similar. Elias was a big part of that, of course. I think if you want to take Kamar Rocker, though, you probably can't take Drew Jones, maybe, and have to maybe even pay a little bit over slot to get Drew Jones, or he's going to be a hefty price tag compared to the rest of them. Right. And speaking of Drew Jones, we're going to hear from his high school head coach in just a little bit, Brian Kramer. He's going to dive into his game some more. It's still the consensus name right now among most mock drafts. Like, if I were to pull every mock draft that we could get our hands on, Drew Jones is at the top of most of them right now. So when we are, you know, I said Tamar Johnson will be my educated guess. That's maybe off the board. If if Vegas was making odds right now, which they probably are somewhere, yeah. if we're being honest, we could probably find them. <laughs> I think Drew Jones would still be at the top of that list. It's just, it would still sort of surprise me. And I think I said this before, I'll believe it when I see it, if they do take Drew Jones, number one. Probably right now, I would tend to agree with you, but... Again, it, it's going to be somewhere in that range of I, I we talked. I had the Brooks Lee conversation, yeah. and if they had a later pick, he would definitely fit that mold of a Kerstad and a Kowser. But I just don't think with the number one pick they would do that. They would take somebody who is that far down a lot of people's boards. So to me, it's going to fall somewhere between Drew Jones, who's probably going to be an overslot guy, and Brooks Lee, who would be a way underslot guy. So that leaves the three guys in the middle with Tamar. Uh, Jackson Holiday and uh, Elijah, Elijah Green, Green. Mm-hmm. and Elijah Green. Just process of elimination. You talked about in the last podcast. High risk. Yeah, you know he does have a very high ceiling, but that's a big swing to take. And for somebody who doesn't have a very good hit tool as of right now, that's probably a risk Michael Elias wouldn't take. Yeah, and Jackson Holiday was my pick last week. Tamar Johnson was my yeah. pick this week. We'll see about next week. And it, yeah, and and not that it's down to those two guys, right. but like. Those two guys, I think, would probably be the most likely right now. Yeah, and by the way, be on the lookout. We will have an interview with Jackson Holiday airing soon yeah. across our YouTube channel and some of our social channels as well. So look forward to that. But let's kick it over to Brian Kramer, who is the head coach at Wesleyan High School as we wrap things up here on the Mass and All Access podcast. Brian Kramer has some great stories about Drew Jones, dives deep into his game. Here he is, the head coach of Wesleyan High School. Tim Leonard back inside the Mass and All Access studios now and happy to be joined by Wesleyan High School head coach Brian Kramer, who had the great pleasure of coaching Drew Jones in high school. Coach, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. And I guess I, I should have done in the introduction recent state champion coach as well because Drew Jones was a part of that state championship team for you. But to start out, what was it like getting the opportunity to coach such a talent like Drew Jones? Well, it was absolutely amazing. Certainly, he came with a pedigree and a reputation, but those stories didn't do justice to the actual player himself. It seemed like every day at practice, 
And certainly in games, there was another feat that he could accomplish that just amazed you. Uh, you think you've seen it all in the game of baseball until you have one of these types of players. And then uh, you realize just how much you haven't seen. So it was a pleasure. Um, he was an amazing talent, but he's also an amazing young man, too. Was there a moment early on in his career that really stood out? And that's when you realize, man, he, he's a really special player. I would have to say the first day he came onto the field as a freshman, he came off the basketball court um, in Georgia. The seasons tend to overlap. And so we begin baseball practice in January. He was on the varsity basketball team and had a day off from basketball, came out to one of our preseason scrimmages. And from that day forward, left no doubt in anyone's mind that he was worthy of being on the varsity team um, as a 14-year-old. Yeah, and of course, his stats were ridiculous for you guys. I saw he even pitched and went 10-1 and as a pitcher, hit right around 570. To an Orioles fan that maybe hasn't seen him play before in person, how would you describe his game? Well, you said that he, he pitches, and that's not his primary position. Certainly center field and the outfield positions are where he's going to excel. But Drew's just through and through a ball player. And he loves the game of baseball. So whether it's um, in the batter's box, whether it's on the mound, whether it's in the outfield, on the base pass, or even in the dugout, he loves the game of baseball. He is a great teammate. So he is going to um, push himself, but he also is one of those elite athletes that makes those around him that much better. And talking about his play in the outfield and his defense, that's something that scouts have been raving about, of course, is just how advanced his glove is, how advanced his fielding is. For you, getting to witness that in practice and in games throughout the season, just how special of a defender could he be? There's a phrase that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and that's <laughs> certainly true. And in Drew's regard, he, uh, he has an amazing ability to demonstrate instincts, knows where the ball is going to be hit before it's even thrown. Um, and he moves so gracefully in the outfield. You never think that he's putting forth 100% effort because his body motions just don't show that he exerts that much. But he seems to always get to the ball and, um, and always comes down with it in his glove. Obviously, as you hinted at there, a lot of people are going to make the comparison to Andrew Jones, his dad, who had such a successful career for the Atlanta Braves. From what you've seen, what are the similarities and maybe differences between their two games? Well, it's funny if you were to ask Andrew, I'm sure Andrew would say that Drew is a much better ball player than what he was. Um, <clears throat> they had two very different upbringings, uh, Andrew coming out of Curacao and then Drew being here and raised in Atlanta and having the benefits of all of the types of amateur baseball and um, private coaching, um, the knowledge that we have of developing athletes. So he's lean, but he's very strong. He's fast, but he never looks like he's running at full speed. Um, and when he hits the ball, it sounds different. It looks different. It ha follows a different trajectory off his bat. Um, they they move very similarly in the outfield. And um, in speaking with Andrew and inviting Andrew to speak to our team about his hitting philosophy, they share a very similar uh, approach at the plate. Andrew said that for as many home runs as he hit, 
he never tried to hit a home run. He was always trying to hit the ball hard right back over the pitcher's head. And Drew does that. Drew's not necessarily going to try to hit the towering fly ball home run. He's trying to hit the rising line drive that just keeps carrying. And obviously his power numbers have picked up as he's gotten bigger and stronger. Is there anything in particular that he is working on? Because we know when you're potentially the number one overall pick, you have a lot of strengths, but I'm sure the type of worker he is, he's trying to get better each and every day on some little things. Well, every young baseball player, and I would even say every professional baseball player would consider themselves a work in progress. Um, when you're that talented, the intricacies of your game um, are almost oblivious to the common eye. But I would say for, for Drew, he's constantly working on his uh, pitch recognition, knowing which pitches to go after and which ones to let go. That goes in line with your approach at the plate. Um, when you want to chase a breaking ball versus let it go. And when you're looking for that fastball, you don't want to let it get by. And can you talk a little bit about what he's like around teammates as a leader and even off the field as well? Uh, he's special. Um, when your best player is also your best teammate, you, you really got something in that package. And he almost found more joy in his teammates' success than he did in his own and was the first to recognize a teammate after a, a great outing, a great play, or having hit their own home run. He was the first one to, to come out of the dugout to meet them at home plate. What about the type of worker Drew Jones is? Was there any stories of maybe times that you got to the ballpark early and you saw him there working or anything like that? I would say more so than most high school ball players. He knows his swing. He knows his body. He knows what he needs. And so he would get into the batting cage. And while some kids might wait for the coach to kick them out of the batting cage, Drew knew exactly what he needed to do. Um, he might only take five or six balls, five or six swings, and knew he was locked in that day. Um, he might come back for a second round because he realized that, hey, let me step out of the cage and let me get my head right. So he's very mature in that regard as far as knowing himself and what he needed to do in order to get ready for a game. All right, I'll leave you with this, Coach. A tough one, I'm sure, because I'm sure he's made a lot of spectacular plays over his career. But if there's one play that you had to think of that was the most Drew Jones play you've seen from him or even the best moment you've seen, maybe from the state championship run, what stands out? Right. Well, it, it, it came in, in game two of the state finals, and we played best two out of three. Um, the game was already in hand, but we still had to secure that last out. And the second to last out was a long fly ball to center field. And the game was being played at Cool Ray Field, which is the home of the Gwinnett Stripers. And um, off the bat, it was a towering shot. It was a drive that was deep in the center field. Drew was playing a little bit shallow because, of course, playing in a minor league park, you're not going to see many high school kids rattle the fences. So he turned to his left and sprinted and um, no one thought that he'd be able to catch up to the ball, but he did within steps of the fence. And it was just uh, very reminiscent of something that his dad would do. And it was also the moment where I said to myself that there's no doubt he's the number one draft pick. Well, that's an awesome story, coach. Really great perspective from you. I appreciate you taking some time with us. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> 